So if you came in a little late today and you missed the opening, we did read together the Advent devotional for today, um, which you can pick up a copy and read that on your own as you meant. And as we've been talking about journey over the last several months, Advent is a type of journey. And we're going to start something today in the season of Advent that we are actually going to finish this summer. So before I get into that, I want to just recap really quick. Um, The last time I spoke, does anyone know what I spoke on? (laughs) That was a quiz. That was so unfair. Sometimes people at lunchtime ask me, hey, pastor, what'd you preach on today? And my mind goes blank, and I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) And so staying power. Do you remember staying power? Yeah, I know I didn't speak last Sunday, and then uh, it was the weekend before, but staying power. And I put the definition back up on the screen. Uh, I wanted you to have this the ability to maintain an activity or commitment despite fatigue or difficulty, stamina. That was what we talked about in Staying Power. I came across a quote this week by Tommy Barnett. He's a pastor. Um, He was a pastor down in Arizona. I believe he may be retired now. But he said this, great people are just ordinary people that didn't quit. Great people are just ordinary people that didn't quit. That was what Staying Power was all about. It was about if you fall down, you get up. It was about if you've stopped, start again. It's about keep moving forward. We looked at the parable from Matthew chapter 13 that Jesus told, the parable of the soils, and we used the Jewish hermeneutic, if you remember, that we learned from Lynn and Holly Lapka, if you remember last year, and we talked about the soils and what kind of soil you and I are. Are we the hard ground? Are we the rocky soil? Are we the thorny soil? Or are we the good soil? And that parable, Jesus told us, told his disciples, told us, that that parable is a foundational parable for the kingdom. If we don't understand the message of that parable, we're not going to understand anything. Because that parable is all about what you receive or how you receive. What you receive or how you receive isn't always up to the person that's delivering the message to us. It's up to the condition of our hearts. Anybody can hear the word. You can read the word. But if the condition of your heart is not prepared to receive the word, it won't take root in our lives. We talked about the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast and how the kingdom of God is this counterintuitive kingdom. It doesn't come the way we expect. It starts small, but it becomes unstoppable so that it overflows in our lives in a way that is a blessing to others. We're going to pick up with that today. One of the songs that I mentioned the the last time that I spoke in Staying Power was the song by Brian and Katie Torwald called Wouldn't It Be Like You. This has quickly become one of my favorite songs. Brian and Katie have pretty much become my favorite people. Um, When I walk in a room, I'm like, hey, Ziggy or Alexa or um, whoever is in the room. Um, (laughs) Play Brian and Katie on Spotify. And they're like, I hate when they're like, I don't see Brian and Katie. I'm like, yes, you do. It's in my playlist. But I put the words to this song. I shared it with you the last time I spoke, but I put the words on the screen. And I want to start today just by reading this together. It says, I thought I had you figured out. So sure, I knew exactly how you'd move. Thought my Savior was coming with a sword in his hand. To my surprise, he came as a child. Wouldn't it be like you? to be different than we thought, different than we want, but better. You're better. Second verse, they left my Savior in a tomb. Hope was lost, 
and the doubt was breaking through. When you broke the bread, I saw the holes in your hands. How did I not see son of God and son of man? Then there's a bridge that says, help me be like Mary laid down, pouring out. I won't miss you in a crowd because I love your voice and I know the sound. Jesus, if it's you on the water, in the cloud, I'll be the first one to walk out because I love your voice and I know the sound. Hold on. Don't grow tired. Don't give up. He's better. At House of Prayer throughout the Advent season, we're going to sing that song to start House of Prayer every week. Um, that's going to be a song that I think is going to reverberate in our hearts because Advent is all about creating space for God to work. It's about making room, as we just sang about, actually. Um, And today, I titled this first Sunday of Advent, Questioning Christmas. Questioning Christmas. Of course I did. Because shouldn't we question everything? I mean, I know you're like, Christians are supposed to celebrate Christmas, Pastor Tom. I mean, Jesus is the reason for the season. Can I get an amen? Amen. There you go. I mean, it's not like Halloween. Halloween, we had to talk about this. Should we celebrate it? Should we not celebrate it? I don't know. You know, can we redeem it? Uh, I believe we can redeem everything. I believe that everything can be an opportunity. The Apostle Paul walked through the pagan city of Athens, looked at all their pagan statues, and said, hey, let me talk to you about the the statue to the unknown God and make him known to you. Then, in his sermon, he, he quoted their poets. I don't know if you know this, but the Apostle Paul, two times, he quotes Greek poets to preach the gospel. That's so bizarre. So I believe you can redeem everything. But let's talk really quick about where Christmas comes from. Now, I hate to disappoint you, but there's really not a definitive answer on where Christmas comes from. That may not surprise you. But in 221 AD, a guy by the name of Sextus Julius Africanus, I had to slowly say that, began to date Jesus' birth at December 25th. He believed, he did some calculations, and he said December 25th was when Jesus was born. Today, an overwhelming number of scholars would say that's not the case. Jesus probably was not born in the dead of winter. Uh, Shepherds would not have been in their fields watching their flocks at that time. But there are those who disagree. Doesn't matter. 221 is when this guy does it. And so they start to celebrate the birth of Christ. There's actually a Roman holiday celebrated around the exact same time. And it's the day, it's actually in Latin, but I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. But it's the day of the birth of the unconquered sun, S-U-N, sun. So they begin at the winter solstice, when the days start getting longer, to celebrate the unconquered sun, the rebirth of the sun. Days are getting longer. I mean, that's a reason to celebrate. Can I get an amen? When the days start getting longer and the sun starts shining brighter, that's a good thing. Well, the church then decides if December 25th is when we're going to celebrate the birth of the S-O-N sun, unconquered sun, they start celebrating their festival at the same time. The, around the, the year 313, so about 100 years later, give or take, Constantine becomes a believer, a follower of Christ, the emperor of Rome. He begins to mix some of the traditions of the Roman Empire of this holiday with the Christian holiday. And so there's all kinds of, there's just all kinds of stuff that surround where Christmas came from. 
So you're saying, well, Pastor Tom, can you make an argument that we should not celebrate Christmas because of its pagan roots? Yeah, you can. You can, absolutely. And there would be a valid argument. But can you make an argument that we should celebrate Christmas because of its Christian roots? <laughs> yep, you can make a valid argument for that too. And so you're like, well, then should we celebrate Christmas? And my response to you is that's a great question that you should answer. Should we celebrate Christmas? So today I'm wearing purposely my suit that has Santa on it because it doesn't matter what the, the traditions, the holidays, where it came from, what it says, what it's about. The question is, how are we living in it? We as a church don't necessarily celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Advent. Advent was developed a little bit later. It fully develops probably around the 16th century. And Advent is a season to celebrate and anticipate Christ's coming. The word Advent means arrival. So we celebrate the arrival of Christ. He came as a child. But we also begin to anticipate his second arrival. He is coming again. And the reason that we do it over a period of four weeks is we are creating space. We are being intentional to reflect on what has happened and what difference that should make in our lives. Now, I'm going to tell you, depending on what flavor of Advent you grew up in, my flavor might be different. There's a lot of different ways to celebrate Advent. There's a lot of different weeks. But traditionally, the four weeks of Advent, I put them on the screen for you, are hope, peace, some do faith instead of peace, joy, and love. So there's an Advent wreath. And there are four candles that represent the four weeks of Advent. And today, one candle is lit. Today is the Sunday of hope. And every week, we light another candle. And as we build toward the, the Advent, toward the middle candle, which on Christmas Eve, we celebrate together the Christ child, the anticipation begins to build. Now, none of this is in the Scripture. But it reflects the Scripture. Do you have to celebrate Advent? No. Can you celebrate Advent? Yes. It can be very beneficial. But if it's just a wreath and just some candles and just a, a, a formality that you walk through, then no, it won't make any difference in your life. But we've given you a devotional that started today. We'll go through the, the December 24th, the end of Advent, and it will help you dig into the Scripture a little bit more. You can look up the Scriptures that are there. You can go even further than that meditate on what is in front of you. Then you're going to be provided a devotional to celebrate the 12 days of Christmas. Traditionally in the church, Christmas is not a day. It's a 12-day event, and it ends on Epiphany, which is about January 5th. The Feast of Epiphany is celebrated on the Sunday following the, the last day of Christmas, Epiphany. It celebrates the coming of the wise men. When Janet Gross was my secretary, she made sure to tell me, you cannot take down the Christmas decorations prior to Epiphany because Christmas isn't over until Epiphany. So Janet, if you're watching today, I will never take down the Christmas decorations until after Epiphany because I want to celebrate Christmas all the way through. So we, in the months ahead, are going to follow what is called the liturgical calendar, if you will. And so we're going to try to create space preparing our heart to receive the word. 
I put up on the screen the reminder, if we have thorny soil, what do we need to do according to the scripture? Well, we need to slow down. We need to have some solitude. We need to Sabbath. We need to create space for God to move. If you're rushing from event to event, busy, 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 if it is going to choke the fruitfulness of the word out of your life. If your ground is hard, the scripture told us you need to sow some generosity and kindness. Advent gives you a great opportunity. Every store you go in, ding, 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 ding. Don't walk by one of them without putting something in. Like that's a way to break up the, the hard ground of your heart. Be kind and be generous. The rocky soil, we're, we're to, to, to delight in the word of God. Study the word. Don't just read the Advent devotional. Start digging into the word. That's how we break up and remove those rocks so the word of God can take deep root. And the good soil is the staying power. It's the, the waiting, the anticipating, the, the progress, the journey. Remember, it's not about per- perfection. It's about progress. So as we go through the liturgical calendar, all of these events, all of these things that we're going to be a part of are going to help us do these four things. We're going to start with Advent. The calendar's on there, the screen. If you want to take a picture of it, you can. There's not going to be a quiz on it. This is just an FYI for this moment. But the, the week of Advent is four weeks and then Christmas Eve. Eh, we're going to break from that because we're not doing a traditional Christmas Eve service. So we'll just light all the candles on Sunday morning, December 24th, and that'll be okay because that's going to be our Advent. Then we're going to celebrate the 12 days of Christmas and provide you a devotional. Then the Lapkas are going to be here over Epiphany Weekend. And rather than talk about the Christian feasts, they're actually going to be talking about the Jewish feasts and how the Jewish feasts help us understand a lot more about who Jesus is. So that's what they're going to do over that weekend. Then we get to look forward to Candlemas. Candlemas is a holiday where we celebrate Jesus as the light to the Gentiles on February 2nd, otherwise known as Groundhog Day. I know, yeah. Did you know that Groundhog Day actually has its roots in a Christian holiday? Mm-hmm. I promise you, though, if you go to Punxsutawney on February 2nd, there will not be a lot of worshiping Jesus. There will be a lot of pagan revelry. So we're going to celebrate Candlemas. I'll celebrate Groundhog Day on my own. Ash Wednesday, February 14th, we're going to do the season of Lent together. You're going to get a devotional by Alicia Britt Cole called the 40 Days of Decrease. We're going to be talking about those 40 days of Lent, what it means to become less so that he can become greater. We're going to celebrate Holy Week. We're going to celebrate Palm Sunday. We may even let our kids carry palm branches. Woohoo! Yeah, some of you, I knew my wife would love it. We're going to just do Palm Sunday. I, I can't promise we're going to do all this every week, but we're going to celebrate Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, and Resurrection Day. We may not celebrate it here. We may celebrate it by telling you, hey, let's all go to this church on Monday, Thursday, since they already have a service. Let's worship there together with them. What? Who's going to do crazy stuff like that? Pastor Tom, get that suit off. (laughs) Then we're going to talk about the 40 days up to Jesus' ascension, which the ascension of Jesus is very powerful. It's just like the forgotten thing that we never talk about. Death, burial, resurrection, Pentecost, ascension. Big thing. 
We're going to talk about that. Ten days later, we're going to talk about Pentecost. Pentecost is all about harvest. It's all about God getting his spirit in us. And that's where we're going, but we're kicking it off. Oh, and then ordinary time. Ordinary time. So after Pentecost, you're going to get a a 40-day devotional. That's a caring and sharing devotional. That's going to help you find ways to serve others and share the gospel for the first 40 days after Pentecost. Yeah, so some great things planned. Some no cost for any of it. Uh, we're going to pay for it. We're going to put it in your hands. The only thing I ask is, use it. Use it. It's worth the investment if you use it wisely. So now we're going to go back to John chapter 1, because it is Advent, and we need to talk about Advent, and I needed to look at the clock. Okay, so John chapter 1, I'm going to tell you this. I can't do full service to John chapter 1 today. Um, if, you've, if you don't know what the NET, the New English Translation of the Bible is, um, go online. You can find it online. You can find it on the Version Bible app. You can get a paper copy. But the NET puts like so uh, hundreds, thousands of footnotes um, what this word means, what this might mean, what this phrase means. It will help you study the Scripture, and you don't even have to buy anything. It's online. It's free. You can use it, and you can dig deeper into some of these passages. Um, I'll tell you now, John chapter 1 has about 40 or 45 footnotes. It's just immense. This is such a rich chapter. But John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, is what we refer to as the prologue. John is about, he's setting up this book, what he's about to to do. The first 13 verses are the Genesis account of the prologue. And then verses 14 through 18 are the Exodus account of the prologue. And I'll I'll show you what I mean as we go through it. So verse 1, John chapter 1, this translation, if you're wondering, comes from the Bible Project. Um, The Bible Project put together a a, just a literal Hebrew-Greek translation of the Scripture in a way that sometimes is choppy, but it's very literal. So that's the one I chose for today, in case you were wondering. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things through the Word came to be, and without Him nothing has come to be which has come to be. See what I mean? It's a, it's a little bit wordy. This word, the word, is the Greek word logos. Logos is a Greek philosophical term that is more like a, a statement or a speech or an account. It's, it's literally a string of words. In Greek philosophy, the word logos referred to an impersonal principle of order the pattern of reason that was woven into the fabric of society. So what John is doing is he's taking this Greek philosophical word, logos, and he's saying, hey, the logos that's woven into the fabric of society, this reason, this word, is not some impersonal force. It's the living God. Now, he didn't say that yet, but he's introducing it. So for us that know what's coming, man, that's exciting. But for these people that are just reading it for the first time, they're like, hmm, this is interesting. The Word, the Logos, was with God in the beginning. This, I want to read more. So he takes us back to the Genesis account. In the beginning, the Word, the Logos, was woven into the fabric of the world. Later, he's going to show us that this is Jesus. But in Genesis chapter 1, if you go back, 10 times God speaks 
He uses words to bring the dark chaos into an ordered cosmos. In the beginning, the Hebrew says there was tohu vavohu. We've talked about this. The tohu vavohu is the dark chaos. It's the chaotic nothingness that was in the beginning. And God spoke to the chaotic nothingness, and he ordered it, and he brought order to it, and he filled it with life. That's what he's doing. And John tells us here in John 1.1, the word was with God in the beginning. Nothing has come into being without the word. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of humanity, and the light shines in the darkness. The darkness, the chaotic nothingness, and the darkness did not overcome it. It didn't stand a chance. There was a human sent from God. His name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness so that he could bear witness about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but so that he could bear witness about the light. Stop there. So John's going to do this again, where he's going to say, here's, here's the Genesis account, here's the witness to it, and then he's going to give you a choice. Then he's going to do it again in the next couple of verses. But he's telling us Jesus is the word. Jesus is the light. Even though he's not introduced him yet as Jesus, that's what he's saying. John came as a witness so that you might believe. There's a witness to the light. In John chapter 20, verse 31, this verse isn't on the screen, but John says, I have written the book of the gospel of John. I have written this so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. From beginning to end, John is saying there's a witness to the light. So verse 9, the light, the true one, which gives light to all humanity was coming into the world. He, the, in the world, he was. And the world through him came to be. And the world did not know him. Unto his own he came, and his own did not receive him. Let's stop. God tells us in his word that he can clearly be seen just by looking at creation. Romans chapter 1 says that as humans, we have hardened our hearts in such a way that we've closed off our minds that we no longer want to believe that there's a God. Isaiah chapter 53 says that all of us like sheep have gone astray, each to our own way, and God laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. So yes, God can be revealed through creation. Yes, you can experience him and encounter him. But what John is saying here is, Jesus came to show us who God is. He is God. And he is the exact representation of God. He came to the world, but the world didn't know him. He came to his own. He came to the nation of Israel, but they did not receive him. It doesn't say they didn't know him. The problem was he came different than they expected. See, the Messiah, according to Jewish thinking, the Jews had what they would call two-part eschatology. So the Messiah was going to come to earth. He was going to set up a kingdom, and then the kingdom would reign. That's two parts. Before the Messiah, Messiah, second part, kingdom. Jesus comes and says, mm, it's really a three-part eschatology. Before Messiah, Messiah here, season where the kingdom has been inaugurated, where the kingdom can operate, where the kingdom of God overlaps with mankind again. Third part, 
Jesus comes back to reign in person forever. Three-part eschatology. The Jews didn't recognize that, so they didn't want that. Jesus does all of his teaching to introduce this kingdom that starts small, like a little yeast that you put into a lot of dough. And it just starts small, but it just begins to take over. And here's the thing. When you put yeast in the dough, you don't even have to do anything. The power is not in you. The power is in the gospel. The power is in the yeast, the word, the kingdom. And once you get it in your life, it's unstoppable. Oh, it takes the pressure off. Doesn't mean I don't have anything to do. But the yeast just grows and it grows. And ultimately, it's going to be fully realized at the second coming of Jesus. So then John concludes the Genesis account in verse 12. But to those who did receive him, he gave authority to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. Those not from blood and not from the desire of the flesh and not from the desire of a man, but from God they were born. Did you see that? Those who receive him have the authority to be carriers of the kingdom. He has restored us as humanity to rule and reign on the earth to establish his kingdom as children of God. Oh, that is far more exciting than I think you have maybe realized. <laughs> he broke down every dividing wall. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. John says, here is the logos. Here is the word that is woven into the fabric. It's not an impersonal force. It is the son of God. He has come to this earth and his earth, the earth did not recognize him or did not receive him. But if you receive him, you get the authority to be his child and you get to be a part of building his kingdom. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. So when I say we're questioning Christmas, my question is, have we stepped into our authority and rights as the children of God? I'm questioning, has Christmas made a difference in our lives? That's what I want us to wrestle with. Because if it's just a tree, if it's just a funny suit, and it's not impacting the world around us, then I question why we even do it. John goes on. Verse 14. He gives us the Exodus account. And the word came to be flesh, and it tabernacled. <laughs> Literally, that word means to pitch your tent. Yep. Pitch your tent. That's what the Logos did. He pitched his tent among us. We saw his glory. The glory as the... He's witnessing... The glory as the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, the Baptist, bore witness about him, and he cried out, saying, This is the one whom I said, the one who comes after me has been in front of me because he was prior to me. So let's stop for a second. That word tabernacle is clearly a reference to the tabernacle in the wilderness where God's presence dwelt among the people of Israel. Heaven and earth overlap in that sacred space. 
In the Garden of Eden, that was the first temple. That was the overlap. Why were there talking animals in the Garden of Eden? Because it was the overlap. It was the temple. It was the place where God and humanity met. And God gave humanity a commission in that temple and said, fill the earth, subdue it, take what you see here and spread it everywhere. They didn't do such a good job of that, did they? No, they failed. But God had a plan. And he sent another tabernacle in the wilderness where his presence overlapped with his people. Then the temple was built where God's presence overlapped with people. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's a whole lot of garden imagery in the decorations of the tabernacle and in the decorations of the temple. That's by design. This is what God has always wanted to do. He's wanted to create a space where he dwells with his people. Oh, Christmas is, you didn't know Christmas was this exciting. I know. Jesus comes as the tabernacle where heaven and earth overlap. Again, in John chapter 1, later he's going to tell Nathaniel, you're going to see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Clear reference to Genesis where Jacob has a dream and he calls it the house of God. Jesus is the house of God. Can I tell you, he didn't come just to be the house of God. He came to fulfill his mission so that he could go to the Father, send the Spirit so the Spirit could fill the new house of God. And everywhere you go this Christmas, you are the overlap of heaven and earth. Stop being grumpy. Stop complaining. Stop talking about long lines. Stop talking about people saying Xmas or happy holidays. Stop murmuring and complaining. Just be the temple. Release it everywhere you go. And if you're grumpy, oh, what kind of soil are you? What do you need to do about it? The church is filled with too many Christians longing for a day that someday I won't have these problems. But here's the, the kicker. You're called to live with peace, joy, hope. Now in affliction, there's not a magic curtain that you pass through when you go into the other side. And if you can't do it here, what makes you think you're going to do it there? Well, heaven isn't at all like I expected. I mean, I expected my mansion to look different. I mean, if we complain about it here, won't we complain about it there? That's an interesting thought, Pastor Tom. I never thought of that before. I know. Okay, verse 16. We've got to keep going. Whew. For from his fullness, we've all received even grace in place of grace. For the Torah was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. No one has ever seen God ever. The one and only God who is in the bosom of the Father, that one has revealed. And then John just stops. He leaves it like open-ended, and he does it on purpose. That's an invitation. Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. That doesn't mean that he was created. Jesus always existed. The bosom of the Father shows the closeness, the unity that he has. He's literally sitting in the lap of the Father. Come to make the Father known. See, you thought the Father was this mean guy that just couldn't wait to punish anybody. But Jesus came to show that the Father is a God of love and his love is the most powerful force on the entire earth. And if you would just be baptized in his love, Paul says if your roots would just go down deep into the soil of God's love, it would change everything for you. Yeah, there's a judgment coming. Absolutely. But he is a God of love. 
And that's what Jesus came to show us. And John doesn't stop because he says, this is an invitation. It's an invitation to keep reading. It's an invitation to keep learning. It's an invitation to keep experiencing this God who Jesus came to make known. In John chapter 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is not heaven when you die. Eternal life is knowing God, knowing that right now you are the temple of the living God and where you are is the overlap of heaven and earth. And even if you feel like you're just falling apart right now, I promise you the kingdom is there. Trust it. Cling to it. Prepare the soil to receive it better. Do what you need to do. But the kingdom is there. Philippians 3.10. Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection, the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that somehow I can attain to the resurrection from the dead. Christmas is an invitation to experience and overflow with the kingdom. That's what it is. This is what Advent is all about. I want to read a quote to you today. It's a really long quote. It's going to take, I'll just tell you, it's going to take me about eight minutes to read it. It's that long. It's not a direct quote from a book. It's several different quotes from the same book. The book is written by Rob Bell, and this is what it says. I want you to listen. I think this sums up so perfectly, perfectly what I'm saying today. By the way, this is not an endorsement of everything Rob Bell believes. In no way, shape, or form. I want to acknowledge that clearly to you today in case you come across something that Rob Bell says, eh, that seems a little shady. But don't let it take away from what this says. Listen to this. I put it on the screen so you can follow along as I read it. Jesus teaches us how to live now in such a way that what we create, who we give our efforts to, and how we spend our time will all endure in the new world. Taking heaven seriously then means taking suffering seriously now. Oh, the sheep and the goats. Thank you, Stan, for that. Not because we've bought into the myth that we can create a utopia given enough time, technology, and good voting choices, but because we have great confidence that God has not abandoned human history and is actively at work within it, taking it somewhere. Around a billion people in the world today do not have access to clean water. People will have access to clean water in the age to come. So working for clean water access for all is participating now in the life of the age to come. That's what happens when the future is dragged into the present. It often appears that those who talk the most about going to heaven when you die talk the least about bringing, to heaven, bringing heaven to earth right now. As Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus teaches us to pursue the life of heaven now and also then, anticipating the day when earth and heaven are fully one. <laughs> Honest business, redemptive art, honorable law, sustainable living, medicine, education, making a home, tending a garden. They're all sacred tasks to be done in partnership with God now 
because they will all go on in the age to come, in heaven, on earth. Our eschatology shapes our ethics. Eschatology is about last things. Ethics are about how you live. What you believe about the future shapes, informs, and determines how you live now. A gospel that leaves out its cosmic scope will always feel small. A gospel that has as its chief message avoiding hell or not sinning will never be the full story. The cross and the resurrection are personal. This cosmic event has everything to do with how every single one of us lives every single day. It's a pattern, a rhythm, a practice, a reality rooted in the elemental realities of creation, extending to the very vitality of our soul. When we say yes to God, when we open ourselves to Jesus' living, his giving act on the cross, we enter into a way of life. He is the source, the strength, the example, the assurance that this pattern of death and rebirth is the way into the only kind of life that actually sustains and inspires. Jesus talks about death and rebirth constantly, his and ours. He calls us to let go, turn away, renounce, confess, repent, leave behind the old ways. He talks of the life that will come, come from his own death. And he promises that life will flow to us in thousands of small ways as we die to our egos, our pride, our need to be right, our self-sufficiency, our rebellion, our stubborn insistence that we deserve to get our way. When we cling with white knuckles to our sins and our hostility, we're like a tree that won't let its leaves go. There cannot be spring if we're stuck in the fall. Lose your life and find it, he says. That's how the world works. That's how the soul works. That's how life works when you're dying to live. It's good, isn't it? Ah, it's good. The pastor John writes in Revelation 20 that people will reign with God. The word reign means to actively participate in the ordering of creation. We were made to explore and discover and learn and create and shape and form and engage this world. This helps us understand the exchange between the rich man and Jesus. Jesus wants to free him to more actively participate in God's good world, but the man isn't up for it. His unwillingness, we learn, leads us to another insight about heaven. Heaven comforts, but it also confronts. The prophets promised a new world, free from tears and pain and harm and disgrace and disease. That's comforting. People have clung to those promises for years because they're inspiring. They can help sustain us through all kinds of difficulties. But heaven also confronts. Heaven, we learn, has teeth, flames, edges, sharp points. What Jesus is insisting with the rich man is that certain things simply will not survive in the age to come, like coveting and greed. The one thing that people won't be wanting in the perfect peace and presence of God is someone else's life. The man is clearly attached to his wealth and his possessions, so much so that when Jesus invites him to leave them behind, he can't do it. 
Jesus brings the man hope, but that hope bears within it judgment. The man's heart is revealed through his response to Jesus' invitation to sell his things, and his heart is hard. And just for the record, when our heart is hard, what do we do? Sow generosity and kindness. Another example right there. His attachment to his possessions is revealed, and he clings all the more tightly. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3 that the day the prophets spoke of, the one that inaugurates life in the age to come, will bring everything to light and reveal it with fire. The kind of fire that will test the quality of each person's work. Some in this process will find that they spent their energies and efforts on things that won't be in heaven on earth. If it is burned up, Paul writes, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. (laughs) Flames in heaven. That's interesting. Imagine being a racist in heaven on earth, sitting down at the great feast and realizing you're sitting next to them, those people, the ones you've despised for years. Your racist attitude would simply not survive. Those flames in heaven would be hot. Jesus makes no promise that in the blink of an eye, we will suddenly become totally different people who have vastly different tastes, attitudes, and perspectives. Paul makes it very clear that we will have our true selves revealed and that once the sins and habits and bigotry and pride and petty jealousies are prohibited and removed, for some, there simply won't be much left. As one escaping through the flames is how he put it. It's very, very common to hear talk about heaven framed in the terms of who gets in and how to get in. What we find Jesus teaching over and over and over again, is that he's interested in our hearts being transformed so that we can actually handle heaven. To portray heaven as bliss, peace, and endless joy is a beautiful picture and true, but it raises the question, how many of us could handle it as we are today? How would each of us do in a reality that had no capacity for cynicism or slander or worry or pride? It's important then to keep in mind that heaven has the potential to be a kind of starting over, learning how to be human all over again. Imagine living with no fear, ever. That would take some getting used to. So would a world where loving your neighbor was the only option. So would a world where every choice was good for the earth. That would be a strange world at first. That could take some getting used to. Jesus called disciples, students of life, to learn from him how to live in God's world, God's way. Constantly learning and growing and evolving and absorbing, I'll say, and progressing. Tomorrow is never simply a repeat of today. Much of the speculation about heaven, and more important, the confusion, comes from the idea that in the blink of an eye, we will automatically become totally different people who know everything. But our heart, our character, our desires, our longings, those things take time. Jesus calls disciples in order to teach us 
how to be and what to be. His intention is for us to be growing progressively in generosity, forgiveness, honesty, courage, truth-telling, and responsibility, so that as these take over our lives, we are taking part more and more in life in the age to come. Now. Here's my challenge. Make Christmas matter. Advent is a season of preparation. It's a season of consecration where we set ourselves apart, where we become more otherworldly. Not like pie in the sky, get in a mansion, gold streets kind of otherworldly, but otherworldly the way that Stan read for us in the sheep and the goats, the one that cares for my neighbor, the one that visits those that are sick and lonely and hurting, the one that makes a difference because it's in the age to come. Here's the thing. Please do not carry this burden on your shoulders alone. It would be easy to take that message and leave here like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress with the burden of that on your shoulders. All you need to do is begin to acknowledge the condition of your heart. How's your soil? Receive the kingdom. Acknowledge, oh, that's what I want. Acknowledge there's something I got to do. There's some thorns that maybe need to be taken care of. There's some rocks that need to be pulled out. There's some path that needs to be broken up a little bit. There's some things in my life that I need to do. Because here's the truth. God is desperately pursuing you. He desperately is. There are two parables in Matthew chapter 13 that I studied this week with a group of, of friends that I, I never had looked at the way bef- this way before. The parable of the treasure and the parable of the, the great pearl. You remember those? I mean, the guy sold everything he had and he could, so he could buy the field with the treasure in it. And we tend to read that as us. Like, we're the guy that needs to sell everything to buy the field to get the treasure. But every other parable in the story, that doesn't fit. God is the sower. God is the one that that is in the the parable of the weed and the wheats. God is the one. So if we're going to follow suit, God is the one that found the treasure in the field. And he went and he sold everything to get that field. You're that treasure. If you go to Ezekiel chapter 16 and just read that whole chapter, it's a remez from that parable about how God found Israel in a field, naked and bloodied, and he clothed them. Can I tell you, God is in pursuit of you. You don't have to make the kingdom happen. (laughs) You just have to receive it. You have to make sure the soil of your heart is ready to receive it. And when the kingdom comes, it just starts taking on a life of its own. In Romans chapter 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? 
Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Our job is to create the space. Can you throw up that last screen one more time? Here's the soils one more time. The hard heart, sow generosity and kindness. The thorns, create some space. If your calendar is full, oh, I hate preaching this. If you're, if you're full from sun up to sundown, it's going to choke the, the kingdom from, it just chokes the kingdom. It breeds frustration and anxiety and fear. Create some space. Yeah, that's my problem. <laughs> Pardon me while I repent a little. I actually reached out to the Seventh-day Adventist pastor in town and said, hey, you got to help me. <laughs> I mean, hey, who does it better? Who does rest better than the Seventh-day Adventist? And he's been on me to attend church on the Sabbath. <laughs> I will one day. But I need to create space. You need to create space. For some of us, it's maybe the rocks that need to be dug up. You need to get into the Word. Stop making excuses. Get into the Word. Study the Word. Meditate on the Word. Memorize the Word. The kingdom does it on its own. But the soil of your heart has to be prepared. And for some, it's just you fell down and didn't get back up. <laughs> You're good soil. You just got to get back up. Live in such a way that no one can ever question Christmas again. Live in such a way that no one can ever question Christmas again. And so, Father... Thank you for what you've done. Man, what a story that you have written. <laughs> God, I pray that through this Advent series, that every single person in this room, watching online, and every person across the nation and world that never hears of Restoration Church, God would encounter your love in such life giving ways. God, that they would begin to understand how to prepare the soil of our hearts to fully receive your kingdom. God, so that your kingdom can overflow in our lives in the ways that we want it to. Forgive us for kicking against the goads. Forgive us for fighting against what actually is going to bring the kingdom life to us. Help us to make room. Help us to surrender. To let you do whatever you want to do. To live kingdom lives now so that they carry on into later. Holy Spirit, take these words. Put them deep in our hearts. And help them to transform not only our lives, but this entire city, this region, and our world. We pray it in Jesus' name.